Welcome to the Uncultural Bias Podcast. I'm your host, Kamara Williams. Listen, you've been with us, rocking with us for the last two podcasts on part one and part two of the Black History Podcast. What I wanted to do is, again, we broke it up. Part two was full of, um, we went from slavery all the way up to World War One, And now we're going to end this podcast on part three with work, walking out of World War One into World War II, um, well, the Black Liberation Movement, World War II, civil rights, and then obviously try to get into modern day time. So uh, thank you guys for rocking with us for this long. I know this is a long podcast, but black history can't be covered in just one uh, episode. Can't be really covered in just several podcasts. But, uh, you know, we wanted to give you guys a, a big, big uh, podcast for Black History Month. So with that being said, we still got Professor Dr. Pearson, Dr. Rudy Pearson. Are you still here with us? I'm still here. All right. All right. This was a long podcast, but I, it's a lot of good information. I'm enjoying it. It's reminding me of being back in school when I was your number one student. And so, <laughs> um, and so, uh, All right. yeah. And so, you know, I think we talked about World War One and the influx of just black, black people starting to look at themselves in for equality and started to, um, started to try to transfer transfer that energy into black political liberal um, liberation in the US so now we're coming off of um, World War one and I believe I could be wrong here tell me if I'm wrong uh, I know you will this is when <laughs> the freedom car no this is not Okay, tell me some. Let's just. I'm gonna let you rock with it. You're in the driver's seat. What were some of the biggest, the biggest beats of uh, post World War One of Black liberation? Like, what did you see? Like uh, something that was like the major plot uh, points. Okay, well, essentially, so we can get to World War Two because there's just so much huge stuff there, and then the modern civil rights is going to be is that. Blacks began again to see once again a little bit of political impetus, mm-hmm. right? And that was most demonstrated when Oscar de Priest in, in 1928 is going to be the first black person elected to Congress since the 1800s. Right. And, and that's again due to a great migration that as enough black people went into a certain part of Chicago, they flexed enough political ability to elect one of their own. And in 1928, you know, an African-American, a Republican, uh, as he states, because his parents were literally fleeing the Jim Crow South. And so the only party that he was interested in was the Republican Party, um, you know, gets elected and is the voice, political voice for black America. Now, it should be obvious that as one individual, he's not going to have a lot of, lot of change that's going to come about in the U.S. Congress or American politics. But it is the launching point for the ability to speak about issues and civil rights and labor issues and economic issues that black people had not had any voice really speaking on their behalf up to this point in time. Mm-hmm. Right? And the other reason to introduce him very briefly is that He's, his timing is just wrong <laughs> because in the 1930s, black people begin to shift into the Democratic Party. 
And why is that? Test you again. So you're asking why did black people switch into the Democratic Party in 1930s? In the 1930s. Uh, yeah. I was under the impression that black people didn't start switching into the 19th, the Democratic Party in 1930s until a certain political figure, a certain, not political figure, certain um, sociological figure in, in Dr. Martin Luther King best later on. So I was, I didn't, I was, I'm sorry, you got me on this one. I had never thought yeah. that black people actually switched until the Democratic yeah. Party. Uh, well, until, when I say it, you'll, you'll remember once I say it, right? Because it's because of the New Deal. Um, for, uh, FDR. That, yes, yes. Yeah, and 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 again, I I use I, I use New Deal rather than FDR because it wasn't him. Right. It was the fact that during the Great Depression, mm-hmm. that black people were not excluded from getting federal jobs, and therefore they began to vote their interests. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. There was plenty of evidence that FDR was not the trigger for them. It was going to be is that they were in probably worse economic straits than much of the rest of the population because, as we know, if there's any jobs to be had, right. they weren't going to they weren't going to be kept in the black community. Right. And to that end, in 1934, these dates are just kind of give people a sense of time. Uh, the black people in the very same district that elected Oscar de Priest are going to go for the Democratic black candidate Arthur Mitchell, not because Oscar de Priest was a bad guy. But he was representing the wrong party. Right. And they felt that a Democratic candidate would give better leverage for some opportunities. And and pretty much in that area and across much of the voting black America, um, the Democratic Party became the party to vote for. Right. Real quickly, keep in mind, the majority of black people still can't vote because of state laws in the South. Right. So it's important that people remember Chicago is not the South, even though it has its own issues and problems, and that black people in the North did not all vote. But if they were voting, it was more likely they were in the North. It won't be in the South for a long period. And it took a long time. If you lived in the South, to lose that antagonism, because the Democratic Party was the party of the Klan, the party of Jim Crow. The Democrats were the ones that had you know, continued to perpetuate slavery. Um, you know, this idea of what the Democrats are today in 2021 is is is, uh, is a big shift or change from the time period we're covering right now. Well, there's there's right. even a thought process that the Reconstruction era, that you, I mean, not, I mean, me, the New Deal era. Um, to your point, did not help black people really at all. Um, it's it's often attributed. It was it was a bit in, big influx again to your point of black people getting behind FDR and or not necessarily FDR, but um, the principle of a sociological a social uh, socialism. A, I, they didn't call it socialism back then, but um, the government doing what it can to help its downtrodden citizens, and it was believed that okay black people saw this and said okay this is a good good stuff for us and so it was a big push for them to join that party now there are those who say that the new deal didn't really do anything except um further push black people down and we don't have to go down uh, further push black people down the economic ladder now we don't have to go down that road um that can be probably a whole podcast in of itself 
but yeah. I do want to talk about again social the social aspect of liberation. Um, what was the the biggest thing coming from that FDR era? And I I know where you're going to go with this, but I'm still setting it setting you up to knock it out the park. The um, that yeah. pushed black liberation um, in the country during that time? Well, primarily visibility, you know, and I'll give you three primary examples. One is going to be, is that, as I said, black people did not love FDR in the way that which we might think about as a political leader, but for the first time, they were not officially excluded, meaning that there were black people who got jobs under the New Deal that you had Mary McLeod Bethune and members of the Black Cabinet. There were over 200 people that got federal positions in Washington, D.C., because there was this political, uh, pretty obvious political benefit for FDR to include as many small groups as possible to build a political uh, dynamic that would keep him uh, elected. And that coalition of labor, women, um, immigrants, black people, not huge numbers, but symbolism, you know, as well as the uh, non-business class, essentially, you know, dominate much of American politics in the 30s through the 1960s. Right? And so he, he didn't do tons socially or politically for African-Americans, but he, they, did, they were not excluded. And to that end, as I try to emphasize in my class, black people are voting their economic interests, right? Which, again, kind of goes along with a thread that I've been pulling on pretty much through this. You, you, you can't just think about social and political things to understand the history of African-Americans. Um, now, secondly, I said this is so black cabinets won. Second one, or, or second, I can lump them together, are going to be Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. That, why do they become visible? Because America needs to be seen as best. Mm-hmm. And their economy wasn't the best. Right. They clearly would have fallen in favor in many areas. But for some reason, if you can beat up somebody or if you can run faster or jump higher than somebody, it means your country is better than theirs. Right, so so because they, America they, had they, not, so they they pushed out these imagery of black equality through sports figures, and I think it's the first time we're starting yep. to see how they equated yep. equality with um, elite black sports figures um, right. in that time period, and it was a false narrative, of course, and it's something they still use today. They said, "Well, how can there be racism when there's um, LeBron James?" Or right. even in entertainment, when there's an Oprah Winfrey, or even to a point of political, there's a Barack Obama, right? Um, yep. They use extreme right. cases of black excellence in order to show that there couldn't be a racial problem in this country because look at these figures, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like so. no examples. But, but, well, again, I heard part of your podcast on uh, Night in Miami. Right. Right, and Jim Brown's role in that, where he clearly knows that he is being put out there not because of who he is as a person, 
but you know, to make white people feel better about their racial issues or problems. Right. Right. So, um, oh, off the top of my head, um, we're talking sports and all this stuff. When did Bear Bryant and the University of Alabama uh, play their first black football player? Ooh, I don't know, 1970-something? <laughs> there you go, 1971. It's 50 years, 50 yeah. years ago. Right. And that, but, it, but you know, people who watch sports today, you know, it's like, oh, well, of course, there are all, all these black people in the SEC and all these, mm-hmm. um, you know, black schools in the South that, that have black people play sports. But that's very, very recent only. They held on, and then they try to rewrite people like Bear Bryant. It's like, oh, well, he would have done it sooner, but you know, politically, really couldn't. Uh, Kentucky's in the SEC, right? Yeah, they they played a black football player in '67. Mm-hmm. The all-white Kentucky basketball team got beat by Texas Western in '65, and they began to transition. So Bear Bryant still waited six years after that basketball game make an effort. So anyway, like, I'm just trying to point it out to, to, you know, illuminate your point that, you know, people tend to just jump to what they see now and forget how hard it was to break through many of those barriers. Right. So, all right. Then another, as, as but, there, you know, you mentioned Joe Lewis and, um, Jesse Owens, Jesse Owens. And this was a direct result of Hitler in 1936, um, or 34, 35, 36, putting out this narrative of the um, superior race and how Germany was was superior race, white people superior race, and and you know Jesse Owens was used as a figure to kind of uh, dethrone this imagery of. Germany, not necessarily because they didn't disagree with what his concept was, but they didn't want yeah. Germany to start feeling themselves, especially after yeah. World War One, which you know they were decommissioned with um, with uh, 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 weapons and whatnot. And so, yeah. yeah, it was more about the national flag than it was about racial issues, right? So then, World War Two happens. And now you're starting to see black people used as a figure of racial narratives, you know, right. that are not necessarily true, but, just, you know, and, and so um, even in that sense, in World War II, you started seeing the um, red tails and all that. And we don't have to get into that history, but how black people started taking more of a uh, uh, full being recognized in the military as an actual uh, integral part of American defense. Okay, yeah. Now, to kind of link that again a little bit more, once again, it's the language that's being used because as FDR begins to sort of prepare Americans for war, even though there's a sentiment that the United States didn't need to be involved, he understood because of the Great Depression that economics would work for him, and so he began to call the America the the arsenal of democracy. Mm-hmm. Right? We would make the product that would help to defeat Germany by helping out our allies. Right. And while controversial, it provided new jobs that were desperately wanted by Americans. 
However, black people, again, saw an opportunity. And A. Philip Randolph goes to the White House and goes, hey, black people are now voting for you in significant numbers, which may have been an exaggeration, but it was still true. And it's important. That's why that link is there. And if you don't ban discrimination in the military and in war industry jobs, we're going to have a march down Pennsylvania Avenue declaring the United States is just as racist and just as bad as Hitler. Mm. Again, paraphrasing here. Right, but it was a right? it was a PR move to to yeah. to uh, um, take out segregation yeah. in the military to to utilize the United States and FDR's words against him. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want a demonstration. He knows it's bad publicity. There clearly is maybe a little bit of of the uh, expectation that there might be, you know, something there that he would have to deal with at a broader level. And so he caves and signs something called Executive Order 8802. Now, the significance of this is not that it was effective. The significance is this is the first piece of civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. Right? Mm -hmm. That any idea of civil rights had been legally abandoned since 1877, 76, really, until 1940. Now, it says that he bans discrimination in war industry jobs. It didn't address the military um, specifically. But black people do begin to get some jobs. They do begin to, again, move. And at least initially, um, this was kind of called the second beginning of the second great migration that will then extend into the 50s. But instead of just going from the south to the north, a lot of black people began to move west, like out here to California, Oregon and Washington, particularly the, the port cities like Seattle, Portland, Bay Area, Los Angeles. And if you ask a lot of uh, kids in my classes and stuff, they were, oh, well, yeah, I think my grandparents moved here around World War II. Like, duh. <laughs> the first first chance that they really had once they got out to particularly California and saw the weather, they weren't going to head back. Right, so it was a, as a huge demographic shift for uh, Black America and sort of a social uh, social way as well as economic. Mm-hmm. So now we're seeing that the ec- economics again is being the theme here. Um, uh-huh. and do, would you say that the entirety of the civil rights movement, the basis of it, um, came to economic equality or was it just strictly social equality? Um, it's always a combination, right? Because it kind of goes back to that, that old fault debate that people want to have is whether Du Bois is right or Booker T. Washington. And, you know, the true answer is that you need to have both options because not everybody is going to be one size fits all. Um, So people want to know which one was best or which one was right. People will pick and choose. But if we look at the results of much of America uh, progress, black America's progress, there is an important economic value that oftentimes triggers social 
progress and or cultural infusion into uh, popular culture. I, again, quick, quick example is that we look at things like the music that's going to come out of World War II and into the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Is it because people suddenly accepted black people or is it music made a lot of money? It's because music made a lot of money. <laughs> there you go. Right. 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 But along the way, there will be some doors opened and slow acceptance, right, of some integration. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not divorced from each other. Right. But if it wasn't, there wasn't money to be made in music, you would not see that same kind of progress there. Right. right. But that, that's my that's my position. Now, as far as World War II, right, the, the, um, um, the jobs were the real initial trigger. But after Pearl Harbor, suddenly America's in dire straits and all hands on deck. And at that point, you see some of the political and social shift or change that is needed more than probably desired or wanted, meaning that black people this time are going to be given some type of military training because lots of Americans thought that the Japanese were going to be landing on the coast uh, of California any day and that German was going to invade the East Coast. And so they armed Asian people, they armed Indians, they armed Mexicans, they armed anybody that would be willing to fight. In World War II, unlike giving them tests, Right as we saw in the in the previous World War, and they are going to be given options and opportunities that weren't available before that. Right, and part of the messaging again from the Roosevelt White House is going to be this: America is a democratic option. We are against totalitarianism of the Japanese, the fascists in Italy and in Germany. We include everybody. And they made posters and did video messaging, you know, that showed everybody, you know, hand in hand singing Kumbaya, basically. Which was a lie, but obviously it was an, it's important propaganda to, to sell. Right. But there's always people that are going to say, well, that's, it should be, right? So, that there were there were examples of heroism and success that would not be known otherwise. So, the, uh, the code talkers and the, the the Japanese regiment that got more medals than anybody else and the Tuskegee, as you mentioned, and all these groups that prove that all of this, this previous, oh, they're, they're not capable or competent, mm-hmm. you know, didn't, it didn't hold up for everybody. So I, I want to say that um, this also saw the, the first time of war propaganda material being really used and in mass in a mass um, production way, um, propaganda has always been a part of the American populist um, discussion. But in terms of mm-hmm. war, it started to create a narrative of the American soldier or the American military and American exceptionalism. And this is never more evident than obviously, obviously during World War Two, and then post World War Two. Because America really, especially after the Geneva Convention, emerged as a true world power um, after World ah. War II. World War II was really the first time America really started to establish itself as the world power, um, preeminent. 
Um, well, it was the first time first time it was taken seriously by the rest of the world. I mean, Americans had always said that they were the city upon hill and blah yeah. blah blah. Right. Right. So there there was not a problem with Americans puffing themselves up, but. Right. You know, literally at the end of the World War II, the only major country left standing right. is the United States. So there there just was no dispute. Right. Because Europe had and, been and, torn apart. Um, the, right. Um, the uh, Japan, obviously, we, we totally we bombed Japan. China yeah. had, had retreated itself and hadn't established itself as a world power. Um, they right. were still dealing in dynasties and whatnot. And um, Russia had actually contributed more bodies to World War II than any, but the war had had pretty much fundamentally bankrupt their country. So to your point, right. America was the only one left standing, and yeah. they took full... It was by default. Right. You know, it was by default, but over time, people have built it up to be this sort of inevitable conquest of the globe, and it was really by default. Yeah. Yeah. The America didn't really want to be part of the Great War. They, they tried to stay. They worked harder to stay out, and they, they they wanted to get in. Right. They just got attacked at Pearl Harbor and had no choice. Right. They didn't have. They they were really, in that sense, um, were not interested in participating because it was like it's not our war. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 Let the rest of, you know, the, this idea of interconnectedness was not was not the norm. Right, and to the point of more Americans were upset about Japan than Germany. They did not well, see at least, the, at least initially, but politically, we were tied to England, and Winston Churchill very, very adroitly shifted that focus very quickly. And America's first efforts were not in the Pacific. Uh, that took that took almost two years to turn that around. The very first efforts uh, militarily were in Europe, and why? Because People like Winston Churchill were able to say, hey, you know, take care of us first. Well, here's the thing about that, right? So the war technically, when they bombed Hiroshima, the war actually had been done at that point. <laughs> but to Amer most Americans, like, well, it ain't done until we get some payback. And so the bombing of Hiroshima was done to satiate the appetite of Americans. But like, well, the whole reason we got in this shit is because of... Uh, how because of Japan, and so we want some payback, and they extracted that payback by, you know, um, putting a dropping a bomb, nuclear bomb on, on Japan, and um, yeah. it's one of the most shameful acts of American history in American, and that's saying a lot um, of how they just killed innocent human beings just to satiate an appetite of payback. Um, but the war had already actually Germany had folded. Um, they were Japan had acknowledged that they were not going to win, and America is like, well, no, it ain't done until we say it's done, and that yeah. is why, in large part, why America has has a large is indebted to Japan, and it's so tied into um, economically because they realize like, oh shit, like we that was really morally bad, and so you know they will always be trade partners with Japan because Japan can always use. This is like you bombed us just because you were pissed off at us, not because not because yeah. it, well, it, it I, served any any military advancement whatsoever. Right now, I, I don't want to leave World War II totally. But I want to play off of that to just simply say that you know people got to be mindful of the fact that our enemy today 
might be our ally tomorrow because right at the end of World War II, the United States begins looking at communism in the Soviet Union right. as the next big threat. Right. And so the two primary enemies of World War II, Germany, specifically West Germany, mm-hmm. and Japan, received the most aid and financial boost from the United States through the 1950s and 60s. So they recover the fastest. They become the biggest trade partners. And eventually they become the economic competition to the United States, not because of themselves, but because the United States creates its own economic problem. Right. Right. Which is, you know, they, they, they didn't foresee it at the time, but it's, it's, you know, essentially it's, you know, clear that America used to fight the British in the American Revolution and then became their best buddy not long after. Right. You know, you, you hate the Germans and the Great War and World War II, and yet you prop them up. And, and so, you know, these, these contradictions don't make logic sense as much as we, we can show you historically that this is, this is what makes the world run and operate. Right. And, and in, in part, um, Russia is looking around and seeing how, um, how England is rebuilding, how Japan is getting funding, how Germany is being re, I guess, conditioned. And, you know, Russia is, looking at everything like, wait a minute, we are the ones who contributed the most human bodies in this war and nobody's helping us. They go into an economic peril and then this is where the concept of communism starts to, the Bolshevik revolution, everything starts to really come out. And um, yeah. and then yeah, and then it just becomes now this entire thing of socialism and, you know, Bolshevism right. and communism and all this other stuff. So now we're going yeah. into... Um, Still focusing insular of U.S. and and social and the social policies of, of U.S. Um, topography, I guess, lack of a better word. People come okay. out. Of world, people come out of World War II. Black Americans come out of World War II, and they are emboldened by their, you know, desegregation of the military and their advancement. And now they're bolder in how they want to start speaking out against civil rights. And this is where civil rights really started to take form was after World War II because black people yeah, getting were... traction. Yeah, it started getting some more traction here because black people were were now, just like they were emboldened after World War I, now definitely after World War II because what do they do? They use the words of the U.S. against them. Say, oh, you guys are talking a lot of energy, a lot of funk regarding equality. Cool. Guess what? Keep that same energy yep. and apply that over here, you know, insular, and yep, to show all that. Yeah, sh- you know, share share that energy and love that you keep talking about with equality, and put that transfer that over to the U.S. policies. And you was like, well, that's not what we meant. So, um, you started seeing now uh, um, the political figures come into play here and um, changing out. Uh, the American conversation of equality. Uh, what were some of the notable events? I know everybody talked about MLK and everything like that, but what were some of the most notable things that yeah. happened that are not often discussed? 
Okay, well, let, let me transfer out of World War II first, because this is one of those fun things I like, I like to do in my class, which is, well, in World War II, this black woman, now that she was participating in this great war effort and arsenal for democracy and everything, you know, couldn't understand why she couldn't sit on any seat of the bus she wanted. And so in 1944, this black woman got on an interstate bus in Virginia, sat near the back with another black woman. But when a white couple boarded and the driver told these two black women to give up their seat, she refused, ended up taking her case to court. What's the name of this woman? Um, I don't recall. Don't say don't. Please don't tell me. That's not Rosa Parks. That's not Rosa Parks. No, that, and that's, that's why I tell the story that way, because that's, that's what everybody jumps to right away. And I'm like, okay, you, people should remember Rosa Parks wasn't the only black woman or the first black woman or first black person officially to challenge segregation rules or laws. Mm-hmm. And it's not to take anything away from Rosa Parks. It's just a reminder that this is a process that people have to try again and again and again make some kind of progress. But in 1944, and that's the giveaway, and also Virginia, that Irene Morgan Mm. was a war industry worker. She had benefited from Executive Order 8802. She was bringing money into the family as a a female worker during the war. She heard and read all the propaganda. She was aware that the NAACP was taking more and more cases to court. And initially... She had bought her ticket and was sitting in the appropriate place near the back of the bus, right? Mm-hmm. But w- at, at this moment, she decides, I refuse. I have a right to sit here. Um, and she didn't want to. The driver heads immediately to the police station. And when the officer comes on to arrest her, she gets in a fight. And as she said in interviews after the fact, she goes, I kicked him right in the groin. I think she said a different word, but we'll leave it there. Uh, you know, slaps, fights with him, scratches him. And according to her, that she was going to bite him, but he looked so dirty, she refused to bite him. <laughs> and obviously was arrested for resisting arrest and also for violating Virginia transit law. Now, the NAACP, and she was familiar with them, took her case. Two of her lawyers were Thurgood Marshall and Spotswood Robinson hopefully familiar names to some, right? Mm-hmm. And it lost in the state court of Virginia for reasons of state rules and laws, but got appealed all the way to the Supreme Court in 1946. The very first transportation civil rights law, Morgan versus Virginia, was approved by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And that case was a precedent for later Rosa Parks in a city bus. Right situation. So why is this case different? Is because she was on an interstate bus that is subject to federal jurisdiction. You probably know the basics of that. So, I guess this was prior to the Pullman Porter. Yeah. No, the Porter's Union was around, but they 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 were not. Um, usually engaged in uh, NAACP civil rights uh, legislation in, in that same way. Okay. Right. They had their own, you know, 
jurisdictional uh, battles and, and cases. Mm-hmm. But this was, you know, this is a federal ruler law. Right. And there were other cases too, but it's just it's sort of, I think, an interesting story. Plus, I like I like this idea of Morgan fighting with the officer, right? Because right. one of the things that makes, quote-unquote, Rosa Parks special is that she was this supposedly mild... Diminutive, meek. yeah. Right. Which is not, and which, which historically, not true, because she was actually... Yeah, a, a, right. A, right. Very much. But historically, going back to Ida B. Wells and others, black women, you know, they, they, they do what we know our black women do today. They, they fight. <laughs> You know, they're going to tell you what's what. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if somebody's making a movie, I think a story like somebody like Irene Morgan would be a lot more um, exciting, you know, for, for people. But anyway, let me, let me carry on one more step with this. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be is that once that court was passed, a small group of white and black civil rights activists in the spring of 1947 uh, launched something called the Journey of Reconciliation. They wanted to ride interstate buses from Washington, D.C. into the Deep South to test whether the federal government would actually, you know, support Morgan versus Virginia, which now said it was legal. Hmm. Now, most of people don't know anything about uh, the Journey of Reconciliation, and hmm. they also didn't get much protection, so it did not go very well. But the reason was is that most of the black press in particular were covering the debut of Jackie Robinson in the spring of 1947. Mm. Mm. And, you know, that the story of Jackie Robinson is, is, yeah. is certainly right. much, much better known. Right. But the needle had been moved in the court case mm. prior to that point in time. And therefore the arrest in the incarceration, literal incarceration for hard labor for some of these Journey of Reconciliation people really went uncovered uh, until the 1960s when they finally did the Freedom Rides and some people went, oh, didn't we try this before? (laughs) Kind of a thing. But it does, again, get this whole idea of is America going to live up to more of these ideals and certainly someone like Irene Morgan, you know, used the language of World War II to begin to push for, um, you know, more legal um, wins that will eventually take the battle towards the official idea of segregation being a standard part of the United States. So now we're delving into the, these places of the black people using the Supreme Court, using the laws. I mean, they've been doing it for years, actually. You know, they. I don't want to gloss over that. Black people have been using the courts. Um, and maybe, yeah. you know, and honestly, that should be a, a certain podcast we should do where we talk about how black people throughout history had to use the courts as an advancement of their own civil rights. So I know we're we're doing a big gloss over here, but we're oh, seeing... Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Lots of Lots of glossing here in terms of picking out yeah. things as examples of, of stepping stones. Yeah. So we're seeing that now um, being displayed here of black people being using the Supreme Court and whatnot. Um, obviously, it wasn't as widely covered. Was there other instances now where you see the Supreme Court being an integral part of 
black advancement that's not often known, but it's was integral in. Uh, well, maybe for uh, somebody who's actually gone through an African American history course, but uh, the next thing I'd made a little note to myself here was that by the time you get into World War II, the NAACP, uh, particularly Thurgood Marshall, uh, with you know lots of other liars, were beginning to look at schools as sort of the entree into challenging the entire Jim Crow system, right? And one of the one of the key cases that are going to come out shortly after World War II is that uh, in 1951, a 16-year-old young female by the name of uh, Barbara, uh, wow, her last name just slipped my mind for the moment, um, led a student walkout, uh, Johns is her last name, J-O-H-N-S, Barbara Johns, 16 years old, led a, a walkout in her high school in Virginia over inadequate segregated systems. Now, she read the crisis. She knew about the civil rights sort of legacy. Um, she was one of those quiet people that surprised a lot when she spoke up about this. And so, of course, when they got in trouble for walking out of their classrooms in protest, she kept calling and calling the NAACP to represent their particular high school and that ended up being one of the five different cases that comprised Brown versus Board of Education. Right. Now, hopefully people know, you know, when something, an event happens, it usually takes a while to work its way through the court system. Right, right. So people are going, well, Brown didn't pass until 1954. Right. Well, they were collecting evidence and materials Only going back into the 1940s. Yeah, or 1950. Yeah, yeah. Right. so... Right. So, I mean, this, you know, it takes a long time to sort of collect all this. And then the Supreme Court didn't even want to hear that case anyway. Mm -hmm. But those stories and images and people like Barbara Johns, who at 16, you know, was getting telephone calls and letters uh, threatening her life, crosses burned on her family's yard. Um, the adults in that community were getting fired from their jobs. You know, to stop all of this activity. And once again, going beyond just this one individual name of Barbara Johns, is that a significant enough portion of the black community, you know, were part of this fight because it was about the black community, not just one high school or even one student that makes it into a court case. Because they had to last those three or four years of litigation. They had to endure all of the taunts and threats and physical obstruction that sort of took place. Right. And that happens in case after case. Now, five are represented in Brown, but there were dozens of, you know, cases that had been collected, and they're all going to be threatened at that point in time. So oftentimes people just go, oh, Brown passed in 1954. That's, you know, a fact and a date, but they sort of missed the the danger and the inherent dangers that anybody related to that court case had to uh, had to go through. Mm -hmm. Right now, quickly, um, Barbara Johns is also probably not the first one to say it, but it's one of the first recorded times that really got popularized later. Which is that uh, she goes to people that were worry about walking out. She says, well, 
and they'll arrest it. You know, we'll get in trouble. You know, you know, life is going to be difficult. And she apparently said something to the effect of, well, the Farmville jail, Farmville jail is not big enough to hold all of us. Mm, that's a bar. Right? <laughs> Which means that right. there'll still be, there's still going to be a protest if, if, if everybody gets involved, if everybody gets invested in this. Right. You know, if it's just five or six of us, yeah, we're going to get arrested and everything else. Right. But if everybody's involved, at some point they're going to have to deal with the issue. And the issue is we have a terrible school. We're not being funded appropriately. We're not getting access to education. Right. And that idea was very much popularized in the 1960s when people went to get arrested on purpose. Right. Mm -hmm. Their goal was to fill the jail. And that at the point at which the jails are full, then they're still going to be people available to sit on those stools and the lunch counter eventually is going to have to deal with that problem. You can't, you can't just arrest us all and push the idea away. Right. But that means you have to have full engagement by everyone or at least more uh, of the community than just that. But as it's just easier to memorize one name or one date and, you know, move on. Um, but the important part of the civil rights movement for, I think, pass along here is just how much you had to have large numbers, mm-hmm. right? In mass movements, right. not just knowing a couple of names or individuals. It's more how many other people that we may not ever get to know their names are made this, made this possible. Yeah. So are there other civil rights leaders that most, I mean, I know we know the big ones of Mector Evans and Mector Evers, um, and you know, obviously at Malcolm and Martin. Um, oh yeah, and and there's more coming out all the time. I mean, one of the one of the more positive things I think about um, African American history is that now, in the last twenty years, maybe or so, people are discovering that. You know, some old lady who lives down the street was the first black person who'd get a job in the postal service in, in that area. Right. Um, all of these local histories, you know, these these intimate stories of of small heroes, but they're heroes nonetheless, right? That for their particular region, area, city, town, you know, did something. And civil rights is an ongoing process, and at some point in time. Hopefully we can stop saying, well, this is the first person to be X, Y, or Z because there's been enough, mm-hmm. right? But we're still in that time period where there's still a first. There's, a, right. you know, there's all these barriers that need to be broken for the first time. And, you know, what people say, well, when, when will civil rights be over or when will we, we can declare some kind of victory? First of all, I don't think that's something that we should aspire to. Right, because once you stop the struggle, then things revert back, as we've seen. Right, the struggle is secondary. It's a continual process of advancement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The battle is always there's always another battle to be to be waged. Yeah. Um, but as I say, the idea is that at some point in time, it will become more normalized. Yeah. You know, it's like like the football story we said about Alabama and Bear Bryant. I mean, those. I mean, I can't even imagine being that that single black person that goes to Alabama to play football. Yeah. I mean, we know that he lives, but 
I don't know a lot of individual stories, but that, that had to be brutal, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, being in the locker room, being around those, those teammates that weren't used to that. Now, you know, jump ahead 30 or 40 years, you know, and 70% of the team is black. You know that that it's not a it's it's sort of a non-story at that point in time, and then people focus on that rather than the process of getting up to that particular point. So, was there a another moment within the civil rights movement, even with um, iconic figures as they say Martin, that are not often discussed but needs to be included in a larger conversation. I mean, like, I know uh, Birmingham, and I know, you know, we talk about Edmund Pettus, um, you know, Bloody Sunday and and the bridge and all that. So I just, is there... Oh, there's there's plenty of, uh, you know, individuals and, you know, examples and what have you. So just to maybe throw out a couple things here is going to be is that one of the the people I enjoy teaching about, which doesn't seem to be as popular for um, a lot of the students, was Bob Moses. Um, Bob Moses was sort of a uh, a, a, a academic whiz in the late 50s. He he was uh, able to get some scholarships, graduate, and and got a teaching job, uh, which was you know, a pretty big step up for a kid from the wrong side of the tracks, etc. cetera. Uh, but as he was just getting underway in his teaching career is when SNCC and the sit-in movement and those things began to show up on television, right? right. And so he was inspired ultimately to quit his teaching job, go from Massachusetts down to the South to volunteer for the civil rights movement. Now, he's not the only one who does this. There's other people like this as well, but his legacy is just recorded more, mm-hmm. uh, which is another part of you know how it takes everybody to get engaged and involved. And when he talks to a variety of people, they say one of the biggest needs is Mississippi. So briefly reaching back, Mississippi is going to be Emmett Till, mm-hmm. right? 1955, where he's going to be lynched and his killers are, are set free. And Mississippi is, you mentioned Medgar Evers, right. where he's been blocked and opposed at every turn. Uh, they have the least percentage-wise number of registered black voters. And so he sets up shop in a little town uh, in Mississippi and you know works to register black voters. Uh, you may know a little bit about this, but <clears throat> he is going to discover that it's not just registering voters, but there has been such an inadequate educational process that most people can't understand politics, much right. less right. <laughs> you know write their own names. And if you have something called a literacy test, mm-hmm. doesn't need, questions don't even need to be hard, and they can fail you, you know, based on their local jurisdiction. Right. And so he opens up what eventually are going to be called Freedom School. And they are going to just teach basic reading, writing, and arithmetic. That these are schools basically to get rudimentary levels of education to people 
and then you can try to, to register them vote. Right? Now, a quick little side story on that is that one of the things that came up in the topic of discussion are going to be the Civil War, you know, the 13th Amendment, all those kinds of things. And Bob Moses recounts that people would look at him and go, what's the Civil War? They'd never heard of the Civil War. Wow. Now, why, now why in, this, in Mississippi would you not want to have people know about the Civil War? Right. Yeah. Because yeah. Then you have to get into all details about slavery and inequality, blah, blah, blah. But, mm-hmm. but what they did find out was that if they then used the term the War of Northern Aggression, they go, oh, yeah, we've heard of that one. the war of northern aggression well you know it's interesting because mississippi now actually i tell i ask i like to quiz people like what state has the highest um populace of black voters and you know oh atlanta georgia georgia right you know whatever and i said no it's mississippi (laughs) mississippi has the has the highest amount of black voters technically speaking mississippi should be a blue state Considering most black people vote yep. Democrat, but again, voter education, voter engagement does not match voter um, populace uh, because yeah. they are, for, some, for whatever reason, cut off from the rest of the world as far as engagement and education, and that's been by design. To your point, yeah. well, they're they're still ranked in the bottom two or three of you know educational yeah. access mm-hmm. in the United States. Yeah. Now you you've seen the documentary Thirteenth. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, when did Mississippi ratify the Thirteenth Amendment? Oh, I don't remember. You could go ahead and tell me. Yeah, like seven years ago. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah. Uh, they 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 never got around. So then people, go, what do you mean they still have slavery? And I go, no, you only need three fifths of the state right to ratify to make it into a constitutional law. Yeah. But refusing to ratify it might indicate sort of the popular opinion. Right. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And so when you get when you bring up Emmett Till and when you bring up all of these events that happened in Mississippi and some of the politicians that came out of there, it makes a whole lot more sense if you understand that they never got around to ratifying Thirteenth Amendment until twenty thirteen. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> um you know, so, Listen, I actually, I really, it's, if people can see this, I really enjoy this podcast. There's just so much more we can actually get into. Um, you know, I at this point, I think we're on almost, we're at four hours of just talking yeah. about black history. We haven't even scratched the surface yet. Um, oh, there's, this, that's t- the great, the great thing for me about history is that once, if you start it, there's always more. Right, so, right. <laughs> you know, we, we can never finish it. It's just, uh, it's just hopefully makes people want to dig more and look up some of these names we've discussed and some of the topics. And, uh, you know, there's, there's good information. You want to be careful that you, you look at the source of things. A uh, quick example, if I may, yeah. is that, you know, I tell my students, I go, okay, there's basically two groups of people that write histories or biographies uh, of the Black Panther movement. Some are written by former Black Panther members. Others are written by the police. Which one is, is the source that you want to access? Right? So right. You, you can't just 
pick up a title and go, oh, this is a book about the Black Panthers. It's going right. to be, you know, informative. Mm-hmm. You need to know like with the source. who's writing. Yeah, right. It, you know, what the purpose of this is. And that's, that's hopefully just an extreme example. Some are more subtle than that. But clearly, you can't just click on the first thing on the Internet and go, oh, I'm going to learn everything about this topic. You know, you need to kind of understand who the author or the writer is or if somebody's taking shortcuts or, you know, managed to leave things out as well. And that, that takes that takes some experience and some, some digging a little bit more, but then that's the point. Don't don't rely on one source, get multiple sources, talk to people, you know, suss it out and make sure that you're um, you know, getting as close to the truth as you can. Not that one source is going to answer everything. Even 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 me. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, take take what I'm talking about and what you're talking about and then go out and find some other things to either substantiate or to bring up more questions that you need to, to research. Um, so one of the, that actually leads me to my next thought. So maybe we should do a podcast on, you know, sources of history that are, that are mischaracterized, um, big historical themes or something to that effect. Right. Because I, I think that yeah we uh, we can we, we can talk about that. I'll need I'll need some rest now. You've exhausted me. Oh, shut up, <laughs> man! Listen, you could go all day. Uh, yeah, but, unfortunately, you get you get uh, you know one thing leads to the next this the, the next. So listen, this is the this is the most you've worked in months. So I don't want to hear that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so listen, I'm just nothing. I'm helping you out, Prof. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. Right. So listen, um, let's do this. The point of retirement is not to work. I just want to remind you of that. Oh man. I listen, your wife (laughs) is probably happy that I got you up out of the, out of the bed and made you start using that brain. So, um, what I want to do is I think I'll kind of want to do like a once a month thing where we kind of do a black history redux. Uh, this one was a big one. We did part one, part two, and now this is part three. And I enjoy this. Did you enjoy it? I know you said you're tired. Okay, yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, I know you said you're tired because you're old, but it's okay. Hey, yeah, yeah, <laughs> past my morning nap. <laughs> so, um, with that being said, we're gonna go ahead and um, lock off this one as part three. I know we ended it shortly with the beginning of the civil rights movement and night or just kind of touching upon it. But, you know, once we do another podcast, maybe a part four or whatnot, um, we can delve a little bit, dig a little deeper into it. And, but I think we've covered a lot of ground from black African history all the way till now. And that's why it's been four hours, but I thank you so much, Dr. Pearson. Um, I thank you for just taking out your time and still being a friend of, mine for many years um you know i know joke about me being you know your favorite student but um it speaks (laughs) to our relationship that you know no worries you're giving back to the community and that's that's all we can ask is that you know if everybody does a little bit the world hopefully gets uh some improvement yeah and you know um i really do hope people enjoy this podcast i really enjoyed i've been looking forward to it um, they can, people can clearly see that I love history so much that I'm willing to spend four hours speaking about it. Um, but we can't, <laughs> we can't get it all into one podcast. That's why we wanted to do several different parts. Absolutely. 
Um, any final words before we write out? Nah, just get, you know, there, there is, when I started teaching African American history, there was limited resources. There's so much more stuff now. Like we talked about the great migration and Isabel Wilkerson is, I think made the great migration into a more popular story. The Oprah uh, Winfrey book club, you know, shows that there's just constantly new good material information coming out. Um, and people need to take advantage of that and not just rely on the internet. There's, there's just so much good stuff. And, uh, a lot of things that I don't know that I still got to read. I have a reading list that's a mile long because, you just can't keep up with all the all the stuff, but it's important because these stories are, they matter. as you said before, things that have either been overlooked or left out, yeah. and uh, really fills in some of the gaps. and And hopefully, for people when they read enough, they'll realize that oh, this this actually makes sense based on everything else that I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate it. Um, I am excited um, about putting this out there and hopefully the responses be great. And for those who are still listening after part three, uh, please, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know, take the time out to like and share this podcast and give commentary. And, uh, I hope, you you know, hopefully they're sending some questions to you that you can, uh, branch off into another, another show. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I, I enjoyed the questions and the feedback and more importantly, I enjoyed the, the share. So please share the podcast Sharing is caring, as we say, like to say on this podcast. And um, with that being said, we are going to ride out.